The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zolsdorf. Today we welcome as our guest Avery Robert Cardinal Dulles, who died in 2001. He's going to help us understand something about the differences of Lutheran and Catholic teachings on justification. As I speak, today is the 31st of October in the year of our Lord, 2017. And that means that it is the 500th anniversary today of when, as the story has it, Martin Luther nailed a sheet with 95 theses to the door of the Cathedral of Wittenberg, thus sparking a revolt that would tear Christendom apart and cause untold sorrow. That continues even today, in the divisions of churches that we have, contrary to the will of Christ. Central to the differences that grew between Catholics and Lutherans, indeed all Protestants, is the doctrine of justification. I thought that this anniversary could be best observed by learning about those differences, and so I turn to help from the late Cardinal Dulles. Now, Avery Cardinal Dulles was a convert to the faith, who was once an agnostic. He uh, had an, a conversion experience when, on a rainy spring day, he saw a tree which was starting to flower. That got him thinking about God, and the more he read and studied about God, the more he was drawn to the Catholic faith. And after serving in the Navy in World War II, he entered the Society of Jesus and became an educator and a theologian and the author of many books, including one that would be influential and controversial in the 20th century, instrumentalized by liberals in a way that Dulles never intended, a book called Models of the Church. It's probably his best-known work. John Paul II made Dulles a cardinal when he was 82 years old, and so he wasn't able to vote in a conclave. It was a great honor. Being a Jesuit, uh, Dulles uh, petitioned John Paul II not to be consecrated a bishop. According to the rules, if you're made a cardinal, you should then be a bishop, but uh, members of some members of religious orders like uh, Jesuits uh, automatically petitioned not to be consecrated, and it was granted. So he was a priest, but but a cardinal. Uh, as a convert and a one-time member of the United States Commission on Catholic Lutheran Dialogue, Avery Dulles was well versed in the differences between the faiths concerning a range of issues, including the doctrine of justification. Now, in 1999. On the portentous day, 31 October, just like it is today, as I speak, it is the 500th anniversary of the fabled moment when blah, 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 blah. There was a signed joint declaration on justification by the Holy See's Council for Promoting Christian Unity and some officials of the Lutheran World Federation in Geneva, Switzerland. And to be clear, that's not all Lutherans, okay? That's just some Lutherans. Lutherans don't even have agreement on all their doctrines or share communion with amongst themselves. So don't let anyone ever give you the impression that there is an, was an accord between Catholics 
and Lutherans about justification. You know, Catholics, yes, and you know, some Lutherans about some things. And we're going to hear more about this from Dulles. But uh, subsequently to the, the signing, because there were clear problems with the joint declaration, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, under then Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, issued an official response to the joint declaration, clarifying some points that were inadequate. Now, you might at this point be scratching your head about how, if there were problems with that joint declaration that required such a response from the Congregation for Doctrine of the Faith, how was it signed in the first place? Well, Cardinal Dulles is going to get into that. And so we come to today's offering. Cardinal Dulles penned for the wonderful monthly First Things his own explanation of the situation and the Church's doctrine of justification and what was going on in ecumenism and even despite the flaws in this document, how it might be useful and so forth. He's such a good teacher, I'm going to let him lay all this out for you. So here is Cardinal Dulles in First Things in December 1999 and his essay, Two Languages of Salvation, the Lutheran-Catholic Joint Declaration. Now, as you listen, keep your ears tuned for a few things. The first paragraph really drives home how centrally important this issue of justification is. Uh, effectively, if we can't agree on this, we can't have communion, period. Uh, there immediately follow four questions which lie at the heart of our understanding, uh, our salvation. And there follows, um, rapidly, Luther's four wrong answers to these questions. Dulles uh, then provides some good history along the way, so you can get a context of the controversies. Contract, context is always important. Uh, just the context of the 16th century, just as the context today is very important in thinking about these things. And uh, Dulles is very good about this. Uh, this, the four wrong answers of Luther um, leads Dulles to the Catholic responses to those questions with the correct teaching on justification. And this is really useful. Um, anybody who uh, is a convert um, will, will recognize in this great essay many of the things I'm sure that we, that I, for example, I am a convert from Lutheranism, I had to look very, very carefully at in my entrance into the church. And uh, cradle Catholics may not have gotten a very solid teaching about this. So Dulles' uh, essay is extremely useful. It's also really useful for us understanding the, uh, the parameters of ecumenical dialogue, um, especially given the context uh, highlighting where Catholics and Lutherans can agree and where we can disagree and so forth. Um, Dulles describes a key sentence in a key paragraph, uh, paragraph 15 of the Joint Declaration, and goes on to explain how, if they had stopped there, the Declaration would, would have been pretty, pretty good. But they didn't stop there. And they added a whole bunch of other stuff. And so Dulles breaks down the corollary issues that we continue with into seven questions. And the Declaration intended that uh, Lutherans and Catholics didn't have to accept each other's positions, but that their respective positions could be tolerated to the point that the 16th century condemnations didn't hold anymore. And that's 
really problematic, and Dulles explains why it's problematic. And he gets into the rather blunt official response of the Catholic Church to the Joint Declaration. Then Dulles looks closely at several of the issues that were raised. This is pure gold. Everyone should review this. This has to do with the relationship of justification and sanctification, whether baptism forgives all sins or leaves us sinners and so forth. He goes into a fascinating explanation also about how the Holy See could sign such a flawed document. And so he has to get into ecumenical method. Uh, listen very carefully for his description of atomistic or holistic approaches to differences. And finally, uh, Dulles comes up really with a very deft uh, explanation, an agile explanation of how the Holy See could sign this thing and not like, compromise everything that we believe. It's very interesting and, uh, and useful. Now, as I read, I will include internal references. I'll try to mark with my voice some quotations, and I'll uh, mention along the way Denzinger Schoenmetzer, which is uh, a reference work. It's a nickname for a reference work. The full title is the Incuridian Symbolorum Definitionum et Declarationum de Rebus Fidei et Morum. You can see why it's nicknamed uh, Denzinger Schoenmetzer after its editors. Heinrich Josef Dominicus Densinger, and then it was reworked by Adolf Schoenmetzer. The newer editions of this, by the way, are really treasures. Um, they have the Latin and modern languages side by side, and are sometimes called, because there was another editor involved, a guy by the name of uh, Peter Hünemann. It's called Densinger Hünemann now, but we just very often just refer to DS or Denzinger Schoenmetzer. But this new volume is a real treasure. Every seminarian, every priest should have one of these things. Any real student of theology has got to have a, a modern edition of this because it contains all the church's official teachings in chronological order and has marvelous indices that allow us to look things up quickly. New editions are constantly in preparation with recent, more recent magisterial statements and so forth. Um, in any event, here we go with Cardinal Dulles's essay in First Things from December 1999 called Two Languages of Salvation, the Lutheran-Catholic Joint Declaration. Languages of Salvation, the Lutheran-Catholic Joint Declaration, by Avery Cardinal Dulles, in First Things, December 1999. One of the central themes of the New Testament, if not the central theme, is the way to obtain salvation. To be on the right road is, in New Testament terminology, to be justified. The corollary is that unless we are justified, we are unrighteous and are on the road to final perdition. In other words, justification, as a right relationship with God, is a matter of eternal life or death. If it is not important, nothing is. According to Christian faith, justification is a gift of God, who grants it through His Son and the Holy Spirit. Fifteen hundred years of intense reflection have left us with a number of questions. Four seem to me to be crucial. 1. 
is justification the action of God alone, or do we who receive it cooperate by our response to God's offer of grace? 2. Does God, when he justifies us, simply impute to us the merits of Christ, or does he transform us and make us intrinsically righteous? 3. Do we receive justification by faith alone, or only by a faith enlivened by love and fruitful in good works? 4. Is the reward of heavenly life a free gift of God to believers, or do they merit it by their faithfulness and good works? In the 16th century, Martin Luther came up with answers to all these questions based primarily on his study of Paul. He affirmed, first, that justification, as God's act, is independent of all human cooperation. Justification, secondly, consists in the favor of God, who freely imputes to us the merits of Christ. It is not a matter of inner renewal. Justification, in the third place, is received by faith alone, independently of any good works or obedience to God's law. And finally, eternal life is a sheer gift. It is not merited by good behavior. At the Diet of Augsburg in 1530, the Emperor Charles V ordered the Lutheran party to explain its position. They did so in the Augsburg Confession, composed by Philip Melanchthon at the behest of Luther. A group of theologians assembled by the emperor studied that confession and faulted it at several points, especially for its teaching on merit. After several colloquies had unsuccessfully attempted to reconcile the Catholic and Lutheran positions, the Council of Trent in 1547 set forth the official Catholic doctrine in its decree on justification. The Council taught that, although justification is an unmerited gift, it needs to be freely accepted, so that human cooperation is involved. Secondly, it taught that justification consists in an inner renewal brought about by divine grace. Thirdly, that justification does not take place by faith without hope, charity, and good works. And, finally, that the justified, by performing good works, merit the reward of eternal life. For the next four hundred years the two churches went their separate ways. The divisions were hardened by polemical tracts. But in the ecumenical climate of the present century, as represented by Vatican II, both sides have striven to appreciate what is authentically Christian in each other's positions, and to achieve the greatest possible degree of consensus. Bilateral dialogues, dealing with justification, have been conducted on the international level and in several countries. The United States Lutheran-Catholic Dialogue in 1983 published an important statement that highlighted twelve important points of agreement. The sixty-page statement concluded with a common declaration setting forth what it called a fundamental consensus on the gospel. According to this declaration, justification is an undeserved gift granted through Jesus Christ and received in faith, whereby we pass from sin to freedom and fellowship with God in the Holy Spirit. At the end of its statement, the dialogue asked the respective churches to study this consensus and make appropriate decisions for the 
purpose of confessing the faith in unison. It also stated that, in view of the convergences achieved, the remaining theological differences about the doctrine of justification, though serious, need not be considered church-dividing. The American dialogue had important repercussions. An ecumenical group of Protestant and Catholic theologians in Germany in 1985 undertook a study of the condemnations issued by each church in the 16th century. Concluding that none of these condemnations held against the partner church today, this study proposed that the churches make binding pronouncements to the effect that those condemnations should no longer be cited as if they still held against the other church. The canons on justification in the Council of Trent and in the Lutheran Book of Concord figured prominently in this study. From 1986 to 1993, the Lutheran Roman Catholic International Commission conducted its own study of the problem of justification and its final statement, Church and Justification, supported the conclusions of the North American Dialogue, and applied them to ecclesiology. Thus, the road seemed clear for the churches to take some official action, signifying their acceptance of the results of the Dialogues. The Joint Declaration was drafted in 1994 by a small committee of church officials and ecumenical professionals appointed by the Holy See and the Lutheran World Federation. Their mandate was to summarize the results of the dialogues and pave the way for a public act of solidarity and reconciliation. The Lutheran World Federation submitted the draft to 124 Lutheran member churches and obtained responses from 89, 80 favorable, 5 opposed, and 4 mixed. In the light of the official reactions and private theological critiques, the text was revised to produce the final version of 1997. On June 16, 1998, the Governing Council of the Lutheran World Federation in Geneva, Switzerland, unanimously approved the Joint Declaration. The Roman authorities were not bound to conduct any consultation, but informal reactions were obtained. Because the Holy See had been heavily involved in the composition, its acceptance was taken for granted. But, to the surprise of many observers, the Council for Promoting Christian Unity, on June 25, 1998, released an official response, expressing a number of severe criticisms, and apparently calling into question the consensus expressed by the Joint Declaration. After a flurry of conferences, the parties drew up an official common statement, an annex, and a note on the annex that addressed some of the Roman questions and got the process back on track. The official signing ceremony was held in Augsburg on Sunday, October 31, 1999, the date that Lutherans annually observe as Reformation Day. Edward Idris Cardinal Cassidy, President of the Pontifical Council for the Unity of Christians, signed for the Catholic Church, and a number of officials signed for the Lutheran World Federation. The event was a historic one because the disagreements on the doctrine of justification are generally regarded as the principal cause of the division between Protestants and Catholics in the 16th century. The heart of the Joint Declaration is surely paragraph 15, and more particularly the sentence, 
together we confess, by grace alone in faith in Christ's saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to good works. This consensus does not go beyond the clear conclusions of the dialogues. While it is in perfect accord with both the Augsburg Confession and with the decree on justification of the Council of Trent, it dispels some false stereotypes inherited from the past. Lutherans have often accused Catholics of holding that justification is a human achievement rather than a divine gift received in faith, while Catholics have accused Lutherans of holding that justification by faith does not involve inner renewal or good works. By mentioning both faith and works, both acceptance by God and the gift of the Holy Spirit, this sentence strikes an even-handed balance calculated to satisfy both sides. If the joint declaration had stopped at this point, it would have been a breakthrough of sorts because the two churches have never in the past jointly expressed their shared convictions about justification. But the declaration goes further. In the following paragraphs, it addresses an assortment of subordinate questions that have proved divisive. First of all comes a general question of method. Does the doctrine of justification hold a privileged position as the criterion by which all other Christian doctrines are to be judged, or is it to be viewed as one doctrine among many? Then the joint declaration takes up seven more specific issues. To simplify somewhat the language of the declaration, one could list these issues as questions. 1. Do the justified cooperate in the preparation for and reception of justification? 2. Is justification a divine decree of forgiveness or interior renewal? 3. Is justification received by faith alone or by faith together with hope and charity, which bring one into communion with God? 4. Does concupiscence that is to say, our innate tendency to be self-indulgent, make us sinners even when we do not give in to it? 5. Is God's law given only in order to accuse sinners of their failures, bringing them to repentance, or also to provide them with a rule of life that they can and must observe? 6. Does faith include an assurance that one will, in fact, attain final salvation. 7. Are the heavenly rewards for which we hope things that we also merit, or are they to be understood exclusively as undeserved gifts from God? Each of these seven points, like the preliminary question about criteria, is treated in three phases. A brief formulation of the consensus, a Lutheran perspective, and a Catholic perspective. Lutherans and Catholics are not expected to accept each other's perspectives, but only to acknowledge that these perspectives are tolerable in the sense that they escape the condemnations pronounced by each church in the 16th century. But even this, as we shall see, is a bold statement difficult to defend. The delicacy of the matter is illustrated by the official response of the Catholic Church 
to the joint declaration issued in June 1998. It is divided into two parts. The first is an acceptance of the remarkable convergence already achieved. The second part calls for theological clarification of some unresolved issues. In this second section, the official response is rather blunt, but the serious of the matter calls for more than diplomacy. For example, it asks about the doctrinal authority of the Lutheran World Federation and the synods or ecclesial bodies it consulted. Can they speak decisively for the Lutheran community? The response also calls attention to some lacunae in the joint declaration, such as its lack of attention to the sacrament of penance, in which justification is restored to those who have lost it. In addition, it contests the Lutheran view that the doctrine of justification is the supreme touchstone of right doctrine. It asserts, on the contrary, that the doctrine of justification must be integrated into the rule of faith, which is centered on the triune God, the Incarnation, the Church, and the sacraments. Most importantly for our present purposes, the Catholic response raises the question of whether the Lutheran positions, as explained in the Joint Declaration, really escape the anathemas of the Council of Trent. Without repeating the exact words of the official response, I can indicate some of the objections it poses regarding the first, second, fourth, and seventh of the issues I have mentioned in my summary of the Joint Declaration. Regarding the first issue, human cooperation in the preparation for and reception of justification, the Council of Trent taught, under anathema, that the recipients of justification cooperate freely in their own justification and do not receive it purely passively as if they were puppets. Canon 4, Denzinger Schoenmetzer, 1554. The Joint Declaration contends, on the contrary, that human beings possess no freedom in relation of salvation, paragraph 19, and that God's gift of grace in justification remains independent of human cooperation, paragraph 24. It reports Lutherans as holding that we are merely passive in receiving grace and make no contribution to our own justification, even while conceding that we are fully involved personally in our faith. Paragraph 21. These statements are intelligible only if one understands justification as a divine decree prior to any human act of faith or love. The Catholic response quite understandably asks whether the joint declaration on this point can be harmonized with Trent, which, as we shall see, teaches a very different doctrine of justification. The second issue goes right to the heart of the matter and is considered by the official response the most serious obstacle to agreement. Does justification consist in an imputation of Christ's righteousness, as Lutherans generally hold, or in an interior renewal and sanctification, as the Council of Trent taught? Lutherans distinguish between justification and sanctification, making the first prior to the second, whereas for Trent, 
justification and sanctification are two sides of the same coin. The joint declaration seeks to achieve consensus by treating justification and sanctification as two distinct but inseparable aspects of God's saving action. The process involves both the forgiveness of sin and the divine self-gift. Lutherans, who emphasize the element of forgiveness, do not deny renewal, but they insist that God's justifying action is not dependent on the transformative effects of His grace. Catholics, who emphasize interior renewal through the reception of God's gift, do not wish to deny that God's saving initiative precedes our response and is independent of it. Does this explanation succeed in bridging the gap between the two positions? The answer depends on what kind of renewal is understood to be involved in justification. Are we really made righteous through being interiorly renewed, as the Council of Trent insisted, Canon 10, Denziger Schoenmetzer, 1560? Or is our righteousness a non-imputation of sin, or an imputation of the alien righteousness of Christ, as Lutherans have commonly said? So far as I can see, the Lutheran position in the Joint Declaration favors the theory of alien righteousness that was rejected at Trent. This reading of the Lutheran position is confirmed by the handling of the fourth issue, that of concupiscence, a technical term signifying the disorderly desires and spiritual weakness that afflict our fallen human nature. Lutherans hold that the justified person remains a sinner because concupiscence is not removed by baptism. In their view, the justified person is, as the phrase goes, simul justus et peccator, at once righteous and a sinner. Catholics, by contrast, hold that concupiscence is not sin and that justification removes all that can properly be called sin. The Council of Trent taught that justification effectively makes us righteous and condemned the view that our justification is only an imputation of Christ's righteousness. Denziger Schoenmetzer, 1560-1561 It also condemned under anathema the view that concupiscence is sin. Denziger Schoenmetzer, 1515 when Lutherans say that concupiscence makes people sinners, they seem to imply that it makes us guilty before God and needs to be forgiven or at least covered over by the merits of Christ. This was and is contrary to Catholic teaching. Still another issue flagged by the official Catholic response was that of merit, the seventh on my list, the Joint Declaration states quite correctly the position of both churches, namely, that nothing preceding justification merits justification. In that sense, justification is a totally free gift of God. But Lutherans and Catholics have disagreed about whether one can, after justification, merit the increase of grace and the reward of eternal life. Trent clearly says yes. Lutherans have denied this. The joint declaration attempts the following compromise. 
When Catholics affirm the meritorious character of good works, they wish to say that according to the biblical witness, a reward in heaven is promised to these works. Their intention is to emphasize the responsibility of persons for their actions, not to contest the character of those works as gifts, or far less to deny that justification always remains the unmerited gift of grace. Paragraph 38 This statement seems to fall short of what Catholics believe and what Trent teaches under anathema. The fact that a reward is promised does not make it merited, since no one can promise to bestow gifts that are completely undeserved. In the Catholic view, justification makes us capable of meriting in a true sense. Yet eternal life is also a gift, because our capacity to merit is God's gift, which is itself unmerited. Many other objections could be raised against the claim of the joint declaration that the condemnations of the 16th century no longer apply to the partner churches, even on the particular issues it took up. On the third issue in my list, whether we are justified by faith alone, it is very difficult to make out a consensus, since the Lutheran position is based on the assumption that faith is the means whereby we are clothed with the merits of Christ in whom we believe. Lutherans reject justification as an interior renewal because in their view such renewal is always imperfect and presupposes justification. Here again, no agreement has been reached. Because of the serious criticisms made in the official response, many assumed that the joint declaration was as good as dead. But the Holy See, almost unaccountably, continued to insist on its readiness to sign. How could the Vatican agree to sign a document that it found so defective? The annex appended to the official common statement of 1999 purports to give further clarifications, but I personally do not find it helpful. It simply piles up more quotations from Scripture and from the 16th century documents that were presumably familiar to the authors of the Catholic response. To explain the attitude of the Holy See, it seems important to say something about ecumenical method as currently understood by the Catholic Church. Vatican II, which is normative, lays down the basic principles. It states that the separated churches can acknowledge each other as truly Christian and as being in a state of real, though imperfect, communion. Unitatis Redintegratio three. Dialogues between experts from different churches and ecclesial communities should be undertaken with a view to restoring full communion. Unitatis Redintegratio four. The deposit of faith has been handed down in different ways, in different places and cultures. Unitatis Redintegratio 14. The deposit of faith is one thing, and theological formulation quite another. Gaudium et Spes 62. Varying theological formulations must often be considered complementary rather than conflicting. It is hardly surprising, then, if sometimes one tradition has come nearer than the other to an apt appreciation of certain aspects of a revealed mystery and has expressed them more lucidly. 
Unitatis Redintegratio 17. John Paul II, in his encyclical on ecumenism, reaffirms these principles and insists that theological dialogue must take account of the ways of thinking and historical experiences of the other party. Ut unum sint, 36. Assertions that reflect different ways of looking at the same reality, he says, should not be treated as though they were mutually contradictory. Ut unum sint, 38. According to an older theological model, ecumenism would aspire to take the statements of the Lutheran Book of Concord and those of the Catholic Councils one by one and examine them atomistically and fit them into a single internally coherent system. What seems to be surfacing is a willingness to acknowledge that we have here two systems that have to be taken holistically. Both take their departure from the scriptures, the creeds, the early tradition, but they filter the data through different thought forms or languages. The Catholic thought form, as expressed at Trent, is scholastic and heavily indebted to Greek metaphysics. The Lutheran thought form is more existential, personalistic, or, as some prefer to say, relational. The scholastics adopt a contemplative point of view, seeking explanation. Luther and his followers, adopting a confessional posture, seek to address God and give an account of themselves before God. In that framework, all the terms take on a different hue. For a Lutheran to say that we are merely passive in receiving justification, that we are justified by faith alone, that justification is an imputation of the righteousness of Christ, that the justified continue to be sinners, that concupiscence is sin, that God's law accuses us of our guilt, and that eternal life is never merited, all these statements are possible and necessary in the Lutheran system. These statements find strong resonances in the Catholic literature of proclamation and spirituality. In the dialogues of the past fifty years, Catholics and Lutherans have come to respect one another as Christian believers. We find that in spite of our different thought forms, our different languages, we can say many things, the most important things, in common. And precisely because of our different perspectives, we can learn from one another. Lutherans can teach Catholics that we must be in some sense passive in submitting to God's word, that we must always acknowledge ourselves as sinners, that God's law never ceases to accuse us, that we must throw ourselves on God's mercy, and that we depend on the perfect righteousness of Christ without being able to make it completely our own. For all these reasons, it now seems appropriate to measure the Lutheran theses against some standard other than the decrees of Trent, valid though those decrees are, in Catholic dogmatic teaching. The official Catholic response, in its concluding section, calls for a deeper reflection on the biblical foundation in light of a joint effort on the part of Lutherans and Catholics to forge a language that can make the doctrine of justification more meaningful to men and women of our day. In face of a world that is so alien to the gospel, 
Our churches are called to unite their forces in restoring missionary and evangelistic power to the gospel message of God's powerful mercy. These considerations, I think, are behind the eagerness of the Catholic Church, at the very highest level, to sign the joint declaration, even while recognizing that theologians have not yet been able to establish how, or to what extent, certain Lutheran positions can be reconciled with official Catholic teaching. It is not enough to say that we have different frameworks of discourse. It is necessary to establish that Lutheran proclamation and Catholic speculation are both legitimate derivatives of the same gospel, and therefore compatible. Performative language cannot be unrelated to informative. The law of prayer must harmonize with the law of belief. The joint declaration, helpful though it is, has not overcome all difficulties. More theological work is needed. The declaration differs from documents of the Catholic magisterium that are drafted and promulgated by persons in full communion with the Church of Rome. The Roman response indicates that theological misgivings can legitimately be expressed from the Catholic side, and the same will presumably be true among Lutherans. But, notwithstanding all the theological reservations on both sides, the signing of the Declaration with the blessing of John Paul II can be a powerful, symbolic event. It says clearly to a world that hovers on the brink of unbelief that the two churches that split Western Christendom on the issue of justification nearly five centuries ago are still united on truths of the highest import. They can confess together that we are sinful members of a sinful race, that God offers us the gift of justification, that this offer comes through Christ, our only Savior, that it is received in faith, that the Holy Spirit is conferred upon those who believe, and that, having been inwardly renewed, they are called and equipped to excel in deeds of love. In view of this shared heritage of faith, we are confident that our doctrinal formulations, currently expressed in different idioms, can in the end be reconciled. Our readiness to declare the non-applicability of the 16th century condemnations on justification is based on this conviction. That was Avery Cardinal Dulles' essay in First Things from December 1999, entitled Two Languages of Salvation, the Lutheran-Catholic Joint Declaration. And now you understand the title a little bit. That issue about different languages was absolutely fascinating. Uh, we should take very careful notice about his um, discussion about how Catholic thought uh, reflects scholasticism and is heavily indebted to Greek metaphysics. Isn't that what liberals tend to attack immediately these days? Scholasticism and Greek metaphysics? And then when they do dabble a little bit in scholasticism, they sometimes they, they get it wrong. They just it's like they think differently and they don't use it right. 
Uh, Lutherans, on the other hand, seem to be more relational than rational or systematic. Now, one might apply this insight to divisions within the Catholic Church that have been widening over the last few years. I thought there was a, a very useful uh, interpretive principle given by the late Cardinal Dulles. And with that, uh, I will wrap up my little Reformation Day gift to you and hand it over. I would only ask in return that you pray for me as I will for you. This is Father John Zilstra.